Introduction to the Song of Songs by Horatius Bonar. This book is the book of the bridegroom and the bride. That bridegroom is the Christ, the Son of God, the Word made flesh, and that bride is the Church, the eternally chosen of the Father, the redeemed from among men. It is no earthly love song, brethren, breathing only carnal affection. It is a song which, while making use of the figures of earthly language, lifts us above the things that are seen and temporal into the region of the unseen and eternal. The love which it celebrates is the love which passeth knowledge. The union which it tells of is a union beyond what the eye hath seen or ear heard, both for closeness and endearment. The beauty which it sings is a, of is beauty surpassing all human thoughts or poetic dreams, the joys and sorrows, the hopes and fears, the raptures and disappointments, the meetings and the partings, which it depicts, are things which on a lower scale belong to the daily tendernesses of human affections, but which here are stripped of all earthly grossness, and carry us up to a higher scale of love than that which in its truest purity has ever existed between man and woman. Love is that which breathes through every line, twofold love, Christ on the one hand uttering his admiration for his bride, the Church, and the Church on the other giving vent to her admiration for her heavenly bridegroom. The love <clears throat> on both sides is beyond the force of language to describe, yet there is and must be a difference, seeing the bridegroom is the Son of God and the bride one taken from the depths of poverty and degradation. Is not man, remarks a rewriter of the past generation, split into two parts, man for condescending love, woman for reverent love. Both of these we discover in this Song of Songs. Yet not the less true and deep and pure do we find this twofold love to be. The one does not mar the other. The love of man to woman differs from the love of woman to man. Yet both are needful for the marriage union. The one fills up the other, not the man without the woman, nor the woman without the man. But both together make up the perfection of creaturehood, the completeness of the race. And herein is that saying true, it is not good for man to be alone. He who made them at the beginning, a male and a female, did not so merely for the comfort and propagation of the species, but to lay the foundation of a higher symbolism, expressive of the relationship and love between the second Adam and the second Eve, the Son of God and the Church, taken from his wounded side and given him by the Father for companionship and affection such as never could have otherwise been conceived. The man was not created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Neither is the man without the woman, nor the woman without the man. 1 Corinthians 11, 8-12 it is then the mutual affection founded upon the twofold individuality of our being that is so prominently brought out in this divine song of love. And if we would understand aright what is written here concerning the bridegroom and the bride, we must go back to the book of Genesis and read there the symbol as given us on the formation of the first man and woman, a symbol whose root is in creation but whose development is in redemption, a symbol whose outline is given us in the first book of Scripture, 
whose filling up is reserved for the last. The relationship between Christ and his church is altogether peculiar, so is the love. Human affections are manifold, but this is one and special apart from the rest. There is the love between parent and child, between brother and sister, between friend and friend, but this transcends them all. For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Ephesians 5.31 Is there not something peculiar about this statement, and no less about the manner in which it is introduced by the Apostle as bearing upon the relationship between Christ and his redeemed? This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and his church. All that this mystery contains we know not, nor shall we know here, but in this Song of Songs we get a deeper insight into it and learn something of the wonders of the, that new relationship between heaven and earth, between God and man, when the Son of God, in the greatness of his love to us, took flesh and died, and when the Father chose out for him a fitting bride from the fallen creaturehood of earth to receive and to return his love. The Father chose the bride and gave her to his Son to redeem and sanctify down into this world where she was. In all her unworthiness and unlovableness, the Son of God came, and here, clothed with our flesh and blood, he wooed her and won her love, loosing her bonds, ransoming her from the enemy, drawing her out of the horrible pit and miry clay. He takes her into his embrace, purifying her with the purification suited to her case, siesta two nine, and decking her with the fine linen, clean and white, <clears throat> that he may present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, but holy and without blemish. That bride is not yet completed, nor shall be, till he comes again to raise his dead saints and change his living ones. For that completion he waits the Father's time, longing even upon the throne, for the hour of meeting, for the marriage day and the marriage supper. Heaven is not yet to him what it shall be, when his bride is with him and earth is not what it shall be, when its crown is placed upon her head as well as upon his own. The cry, Behold, I come quickly, is not merely the word of cheer to us here in the day of his absence and an intimation of his speedy arrival, but the utterance of his own heart's joy at the prospect of the final union, when all his glory shall be revealed and all her beauty unfolded when, in language only too feeble to express the truth, he will call her the fairest among women, and she will exult in him as the chief among ten thousand, and all together lovely. Meanwhile he gives her fully to understand the state of his affections towards her, and in this Song of Songs <clears throat> he celebrates their mutual love. It is a song of absence, but it will be the song of presence too, it suits her so far, even now, in the midst of evil and darkness and conflict. It will suit her better still in millennial days. It will not be out of date during the eternal glory. It has something in it to suit all these three stages of the church, as well as all the conditions of the believing soul. It suits her here in the wilderness. It will suit her in the paradise of God. It suits her even now among the cities of this evil world, it will suit her in Jerusalem, the city of her eternal habitation. 
It suits her as a stranger and a pilgrim. It will suit her no less when she has arrived at home. It suits her at the Lord's Supper, where she realises an absent but a coming Lord. It will suit her well at the marriage supper of the Lamb, when the King shall bring her into his banqueting house, and his banner over her shall be love. The name she gives to him is Thou whom my soul loveth, chapter 1, verse 7. The name he gives to her is O thou fairest among women, chapter 1, verse 8. He says to her, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away, chapter 2, verse 10. She replies to him, Turn, my beloved, and be thou like a roe or young heart upon the mountains of Betha, chapter 2, verse 17. He says, Thou art beautiful, O my love, as Terza, comely as Jerusalem, terrible as an army with banners, chapter 6, verse 4. She says exultingly, I am my beloved's, and his desire is towards me, chapter 7, verse 10. He says, Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse, with me from Lebanon, look from the top of Amana, from the top of Shenir and Hermon, from the lion's dens, from the mountains of the leopards, chapter 4, verse 8. She says, Make haste, my beloved, and be thou like to a row of to a young heart upon the mountains of spices. Chapter 8, verse 14. These last words strikingly link this song with the book of Revelation, uttering the same deep-drawn sigh, the same eager anticipation, the same heartfelt prayer as that with which the Apocalypse concludes. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The resemblance between the two passages is too vivid to be overlooked. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. There is in such language alike of the Old Testament and the New, the same sense of absence <clears throat> and the same longing for presence, the same love to an unseen bridegroom, yet the same desire to see him in his beauty. It does not intimate doubting but only distance. It does not conceive that anything can break the link between her and him, whom not having seen she loves. It suspects no change in the beloved one, but only wonders why he should be so long in coming. It is not the loss of love's assurance, it is not doubting what thou art, but tis the too, too long endurance of absence that affects the heart. Hence the eager listening on her part to every sound of footstep or voice that might indicate the approach of the beloved. The voice of my beloved, behold, he cometh leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. Chapter 2, verse 8. And hence the endearing response, O oh, my dove, that art in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the stairs, let me see thy countenance, let me hear thy voice, for sweet is thy voice, and thy countenance is comely. Chapter 2, verse 14. Poetry has spoken often of heavy partings and of lovers' absent hours in connection with earthly love, but it is in such divine utterances as the above that we get some insight into the depth of that love which subsists between Christ and his church into the nature of the absent hours which have run their weary course since he left her here in her solitude into the blank which this separation has occasioned and the longing on both sides for the day of final reuni reunion at the marriage supper of the Lamb. How far the church on earth has ever realised this sense of absence and this longing for return is a searching question. Were there the personal attachment to the Lord 
which as his affianced which as his affianced the saints might be expected to possess could there be the indifference to the blessed hope of his appearing or could there be the dislike to converse about that hope so strangely manifested by multitudes who name his name and profess to taste his love the spirit and language of the song resemble greatly those of the 45th psalm where the king and queen are celebrated nay it is as if the song were but the expansion of the psalm as if solomon had set forth with greater fullness of figure the glory of the same king and the beauty of the same queen of which david his father had sung the psalm is a song of loves and it depicts the matchless excellences both of the bridegroom and the bride it is directed to be sung upon shoshanim which word meaning lilies indicates some peculiar instrument used in the tabernacle and temple known by the name of lily harp either because of its graceful construction or its sweet and silver tones the instrument itself thus carries us to the song of songs and reminds us of him who feedeth among the lilies chapter 2 verse 16 whose lips are like lilies chapter 5 verse 13 who comes down into his garden to gather lilies chapter 6 verse 2 and of whom the well-pleased bride thus sings i am my beloved's and my beloved is mine he feedeth among the lilies chapter 6 verse 3 upon this lily harp the sons of korah are instructed to celebrate the praises of him who is fairer than the children of men and of her who for his sake had forgotten her own people and her father's house whose surpassing beauty the king so greatly desires psalm 45 verse 11 who is brought unto the king in raiment of needlework followed by the virgins her companions and entering the king's palace with gladness and rejoicing for both in the psalm and the song we find the same persons and the same scenes the same utterances of mutual affection and admiration he speaks to her as one enamoured of her beauty rise up my love my fair one and come away thou art all fair my love there is no spot in thee she thus speaks of him my beloved is white and ruddy a true nazarite for beauty lamentations 4 7 the chiefest among ten thousand and thus utters her joy he brought me into his banqueting house and his banner over me was love chapter 2 verse 4 that personal attachment and attachment of no common kind was intended to be shown in such utterances is manifest the holy spirit did not use these peculiar figures without a special meaning that deep and warm love on both sides is expressed in all these passages the coldest reader of the psalm and song may see they are not the language of exaggerated sentiment but that of feelings which ought ever to reign within those thus betrothed to each other we have no doubt of the affection on his part it is love which passeth knowledge and all these words as uttered by him are profoundly sincere and fervent where is the response on our part where are the embracings of the heart where is the desire overpassing all other desires to see him face to face ah has not iniquity abounded and the love of many the many as it is in the original waxed cold 
Have not these last days witnessed a leaving of our first love, such as could hardly have been believed, a preference of other beauty to his, of other fellowship to his, which in the early ages of the church would have been deemed not only strange but without excuse. Unless the study of so sweet and pure a song as that of Solomon should lend her back to her forsa- lead her back to her forsaken Lord and kindle anew her faded affection and waning admiration, Satan is in these days trying to persuade her that the song is one of the one of merely earthly love. That's true. People saying, "Oh, it's not, nothing to do with Christ and His Church. It's just about earthly love." Because the Song of Solomon is, is too sublime for that, as, as um, Pono has already said. Trying to persuade her that the song is one of mere earthly love, descriptive of one of time's common betrothments, a song like one of those which will all, with which all poetry is full, having no reference to that higher relationship which connects her with the Son of God. In spite, however, of the evil one and his sophistries of darkness, let us hold fast the one grand faith of the Church in every age concerning this Song of Songs, and, studying it more profoundly, let us at its sacred fire warm our cold hearts in days when the ruler of the darkness of this world is endeavouring with all his might and malice to draw away the Church's affections from her Lord and to deceive, if it be possible, the very elect. A song like this shows us that the Christ of God is no abstraction, no fond ideality invented by men to embody their own thoughts of the beautiful and the loving. He is real. His love is real. His perfection is real. His beauty is real. All created and all uncreated excellency is to be found in him who is the word made flesh, bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. Abstractions cannot love, neither can they be loved. But he of whom all these things are sung is infinitely real and personal. True God, true man, one capable of being loved, not merely as the friend loves the friend or the child his father, but as the bride loves the bridegroom of her soul. Tell me, O thou whom my soul loveth, is her appeal to him in the day of separation. The voice of my beloved, again she exclaims, Behold, he cometh. Make haste, my beloved, once more she cries, and be thou like to a roe or to a young heart upon the mountains of spices. He is no abstraction to her, and she is no abstraction to him. That which men call idealism has no place here. The real, the personal, and the true are what we find so specially presented to us in a song like that of Solomon. We may use the ideal as Moses used the pattern of the tabernacle shown when in the mount, but the pattern is not the true holy of holies. The picture is not the person. The marble statue is a poor, cold representation of the warm heart and the sparkling eye of the living man. Idealism may suit an age of unbelief, but an age of faith demands a person, a person, and with nothing short of living personality can it be content. Christianity is not a theory of algebraic signs. It is the representation of a living Christ. Underneath all true Christian theology, there lies the life of him who loved us and gave himself for us. There lies also the love that passes the love of man to man or man to woman. 
the love which many waters could not quench nor the floods drown. Underneath all doctrine and all that which is called religion, there lies something supremely personal, a relationship to and intercourse with the Son of God, such as I have not seen nor ear heard, a union such as can only be set forth by such figures as the, strong, as, as, as the song contains. The union between the bridegroom and the bride, underneath all our philosophic or poetical conceptions of beauty, there lies that which can only unfold itself in one who possesses all divine glory and all human excellence. For as revealed in this sacred song, we have the full perfection of that which we have admired in idea and sought after in many a vain dream. As Charles Qual as Qualls quaintly sings, not Charles Qualls, quaintly sings, Heaven never saw so fair a groom, nor earth so fair a bride. One special end, then, of such a song as that of Solomon is to lift what we call religion out of the region of abstractions, and to bring it warmly home to the human heart. Here we see it embodied in the deepest affections of our being. It is no mere theory, no matter of words, no impassive system wrought out by keen or subtle intellect, but something which commends itself to every part of our nature, pouring in the living gladness of love, without which the human spirit is a frigid, lifeless void. Each book of scripture has its special use, the form into which it is thrown is not accidental, not merely as each book its own separate truth, whether of history or prophecy or doctrine or stature, statute, but each book has its peculiar form of making truth known. This song is quite unique in its structure, in its figures and in its appeals to the heart. As the book of Esther is unique in history, so is this song. There is none like it saving only that psalm to which we have already referred. It stands alone in its peculiar grace and tenderness and power. The name of the Beloved is not to be found in it anywhere, but the fragrance of his name is everywhere. It is as ointment poured forth, like the spikenard, very precious, which filled the guest room with its odour. And how much is there mention made in this song, and in the psalm to which it corresponds, of the fragrance which encompasses both bride and bridegroom, as if there were something suited not only to eye and touch, but to all our senses, that nothing might be wanting to the completeness of this divine picture. The psalm thus speaks, All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes, and cassia out of the ivory palaces, whereby they have, have made thee glad. Verse 8, Psalm 45, verse 8. So also does the song in like strain, because of the savour of thy good ointments. Thy name is as ointment poured forth, therefore do the virgins love thee. Chapter 1 verse 3. And again, while the king sitteth at his table, my spikenard sendeth forth the smell thereof. Chapter 1 verse 12. And again, who is this that cometh out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all powders of the merchant, chapter 3, verse 6. The fragrance that envelops both bride and bridegroom is thus spoken of once and again as if to enhance their mutual attractiveness. Christ, the sweet-smelling saver, Ephesians 5, 2, is found everywhere, and the church, drawing her attractiveness from him, is found throughout the various scenes of the song, giving forth like sweetness of perfume. He moves and speaks and acts, 
in his own matchless excellency, the chief among ten thousand, drawing all men to him. She, with borrowed attractions, yet still perfect in the comeliness put upon her, Ezekiel 16, verse 14, is the object of admiration all around, and thus he himself describes her. All over fair, my love, thou art, and so thou seems to me, there is not one uncomely part, not one dark spot in thee. Come, love, with me from Lebanon, from Lebanon with me, since thou and I are joined in one, thy Lebanon I'll be. So the old hymnist of the last century, John Mason, paraphrases the words of the song. For the song has had many translators, older or more modern, more or less successful, all of them, however, giving us some lines of beauty, some verses fit to be remembered, as if such a song could not be reverently approached without imparting something of its sweetness to those who took in hand to mould it into other tongues, as if such a harp could not be lovingly touched by any fingers without communicating to those who touched it some of its bright or tender tones. The present translation has done great justice to the original, and will bear many a reading, both on account of its accuracy of rendering and its classical gracefulness of style. It is the only translation in blank verse that I remember, save one. That one was published anonymously in 1856, and was entitled Metrical Meditations on the Canticles. It is well in all respects, but it does not render another similar attempt unadvisable. Canon Clark's translation must have cost him much labour and thought. The divisions are skilful, the words are choice, and the rhyme is excellent. In this blank verse, the song reads like a series of oriental or classic idyls. The flow of the verse reminds us of Greece. The vivid figures of language take us back to Palestine or Arabia. I might quote passages to confirm all this, but I prefer to allow the work to speak its own excellences without the comment of a stranger. I am persuaded that not only the spiritual man, but the reverential scholar will read these pages with pleasure. I thank the author for them, and trust that others will enjoy them as much as I have done. Perhaps a scholarly translation, like the present, may help to introduce the Song of Songs, or as the old translation renders it, the Ballet of Ballets, to readers who have hitherto allowed it to pass unread. If so, this present work will not have been undertaken in vain. It has doubtless been to the author the congenial occupation of many a pleasant morning and evening, and it will furnish to many a like-minded reader a refreshing and oft-repeated study when, having finished, it may be the perusal of one of St. Paul's epistles regarding the blood that washes or the righteousness that covers. He turns back to the Old Testament picture of him, him to whom that blood and righteousness belong and learns from his, this holy song that he is the fairest of the children of men, the chief among ten thousand, and altogether lovely. Horatius Bonar, Lagrange, Edinburgh, May the 23rd, 1881. End.